Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast Byzantium and Friends. I am Anthony, your host. There is in what we might call the common culture of North America and Europe a shared repertoire of imperial architecture. There is the kinds of forms and designs that signal to us that this is an empire. It is a powerful empire. You should respect this empire or be in awe of us. You know this repertoire. It consists of you know, arches and buildings of a particular type and domes and colonnades and statues on pedestals or on columns and obelisks and things like that. A convenient shorthand showcase for this repertoire is constituted by Washington, D.C., right, which packs all of those elements into a single monumental core that is designed to project imperial power. Now, in a very obvious way, this repertoire alludes to the Roman Empire. And yet the reference is not always direct. So the history of this architectural repertoire is layered. And the later layers, the more recent ones, allude sometimes to the most immediately preceding ones, and not necessarily all the way back to the beginning. So in many ways, Washington, D.C., at the time when it was built, was looking more toward Paris than Rome, Rome itself. In turn, it was Paris and the various architectural accessories of the French monarchy and then the Napoleonic imperial phases that looked back to Rome. So similar monumental and architectural genealogies can be constructed even within the broader Roman world, if we include Byzantium. So, for example, in the 13th century, when the uh, Crusaders took over Constantinople and the Romans had to reconstitute their polities in various peripheral centers, well, one of those peripheral centers, at least at Nicaea, which is not far from Constantinople, uh, became the center of a number of uh, refugees and, and power brokers of the previous uh, Byzantine order, and they reconstituted Nicaea as a kind of little Constantinople in, in a number of architectural ways, especially with the walls and the churches and so forth. So Nicaea became a kind of little model of Constantinople, quote, in exile. Uh, and Constantinople, in turn, right, had been based on Rome to begin with. It was a new Rome. It was a kind of branch office of Rome in the East uh, back when Constantine had founded it. So so in this sense, you know, we can have a little bit of fun with these ideas and imagine Constantinople and Napoleonic Paris as kind of sibling cities, which would make Constantinople the ant city of Washington, D.C., and so forth. Now, the interesting thing is that Rome itself, as an, an imperial architectural imaginary, had also been the inheritor of previous imperial styles. In fact, the Romans tended to you know, pick up and absorb elements from all of the people that they conquered, be they their swords or their type of monument or their literature or the actual people themselves. Right? So Rome kind of sucks everything up into its own orbit and becomes, a, as they called it, cosmopolis. 
that alludes to all of the prior civilizations that, that it absorbed. Today, we're going to talk about one of the oldest elements that are embedded in the imperial architectural DNA of the Roman tradition, and this is the Egyptian obelisk, which comes from a much, much more ancient empire, right, that of Egypt in the second millennium BC, especially under the pharaoh Tutmosis III. So the Egyptian obelisk, which is not just a merely architectural element, right, but it, it is a fully formed cultural sign that includes its hieroglyphics and its solar associations, right? So this is one of the oldest elements of this imperial repertoire and koine that survives to this day. I refer you back to Washington, D.C., and if you picture it in your mind, you will realize uh, what is the single most imposing monument there. Not only is there an obelisk, but it is placed in a long open area that, if you see it from space, has the dimensions of a hippodrome. And that is a Roman use of an obelisk, or a Constantinopolitan one, if you will. Uh, it's not an Egyptian one. So the obelisk tradition has here been processed and filtered through the Roman tradition before it reached the banks of the Potomac. My guest today is Cecily Hillsdale, professor of art history at McGill University uh, in uh, Canada, Montreal, uh, appearing for the second time uh, on the podcast. You might also want to check out the discussion that I had with her about art and decline and, and notions of decline in the late Byzantine period, and uh, she's written a fascinating book on that. That, I believe, is one of the most downloaded episodes of this podcast according to the data that I have access to. By the way, that data also tells me that most of you are uh, in North America or Europe, which is why I've been speaking about this imperial tradition and this repertoire of imperial architecture. Um, I should note uh, that there are parallel paths of imperial architecture that also stem from ancient near, ancient near East and Greece and Rome, but that have a trajectory that heads toward the East and uh, you know, fuses with later Muslim and Persian traditions and results in a different koine. That would be a separate discussion. Uh, but I just wanted to note that not all, you know, traditions go from Egypt to Washington. They also go eastward as well. Anyway, so back to Cecily. So she's written a fascinating um, ch chapter in a volume on the topic of the obelisk. In fact, she calls it the inter-imperial obelisk in Istanbul. So focusing on the one in Constantinople, but not exclusively, the title of the article is Imperial Monumentalism Ceremony and Forms of Pageantry. Um, so today we're going to unpack the complex symbolism and the long history of the imperial use of obelisks in rituals and in imperial performances and ideology. Um, and I, I had a lot of fun with this discussion. Um, I, who doesn't like obelisks? I mean, come on. Thanks again to Medievalist.net for reposting these episodes. And so without any further delay, here's my conversation with Cecily Hillsdale. Hello, Cecily. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here today. So obelisks, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but it's the, the apex predator of architectural bling. <laughs> like, really, they're, they're practically completely useless right like you can't do yeah. anything with an obelisk you can't interact <laughs> with it in any way 
it's just there to dominate the, the landscape. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like even a Roman arch, you can like go through it. <laughs> you can use it as a gate, I guess. But obelisks are just ah, anyway. But here's the interesting thing. I have the sense that that's because of the way the Romans used the obelisks and, and every other culture that is imitating the Romans, like the like modern Rome and, and France and, you know, the United States, where the obelisk is placed in a large empty area, mm. a large empty space in order to dominate it, like to focus mm. all the attention on it. Whereas in the Egyptian context, like they had, they put them up against the wall of the pylon or something, like maybe its tip would protrude, off, you know, on yeah. top. But it wasn't like, ah, oh, everybody look at the obelisk. It was just one other thing in the, uh, anyway, is that right? You know, it's, it's, it's true that I think, you know, later instantiations of obelisks, you're right, they do separate the obelisk from everything else, um, which in fact makes them even more imposing. Yeah. Right? So I think that the, the power of the obelisk is the fact that it is imposing, right? That it is kind of, it dwarfs the human body, like the scale, right? This is really about scale. So you're right, in ancient Egypt, it was part of a whole um, kind of spatial logic of a temple complex. It was much more integrated into it, but it was the highest point. So there was still, you know, in terms of marking a skyline from a distance, like it um. was still this kind of, um, um, dominating marker, but you're right. It wasn't the focal point. I think that that's what you're getting at. And that mm -hmm. is a real difference. I haven't really thought about that, but yeah, you know, the, 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 the wide open piazza around an obelisk that, that focus all the energy on it, that, that wasn't, that wasn't the same in ancient Egypt. You're right. Yeah. There's like a huge pylon right behind it and probably some massive statues and who yeah. knows what else. So yeah. what is an obelisk in the Egyptian context? Yeah, the, in the ancient context, ancient Egyptian contexts, obelisks were intimately tied to conceptions of solar kingship and kind of royal renewal um, of to the renewal of the pharaoh. So, you know, in some sense, as you were saying, they marked ceremonial spaces. Uh, and these spaces that they marked, these temple complexes, were the spaces that were thought um, through ceremonial actions to reinvest the pharaoh with this kind of sacral aura. So they're intimately tied with royal rule and with royal charisma in ancient Egypt. And so, you know, while the, the history of the obelisk as a form goes way, way, way back, it's really with the pharaohs of New Kingdom Egypt. You know, so kind of the 18th um, and 19th dynasties that we really see the proliferation of obelisks. We really start to see a lot of them. They're installed in temple precincts, often in pairs, but sometimes as a solo obelisk. And they, they really marked out uh, the topography of the site. But as you know, along with a lot of other stuff, right? So obelisks, monumental statuary, great pylons mm. that kind of interlocked throughout a temple. You know, the way I always think about obelisks that makes sense to me is that they are monumental punctuation for a site. Mm. Um, and especially in, as in anchors for ceremonial actions that took place in the site. And so those are the two words that really always are in my mind about obelisks, punctuation and anchors, right? They're anchors for ceremonial 
and they punctuate the landscape, right? You can see them from a great distance, um, et cetera. And, you know, in most contexts, certainly in ancient Egypt, they were conceived as part of this, these monumentalized performances of royal ritual, of kind of ceremonial renewal. You know, for example, at the, the great Theban complexes, these were the sites of royal renewal, royal ritual, and center kind of larger festivals, cycles of, um, of ceremonial. You know, I won't go into detail, but there's, there's this aspect that I really find compelling about obelisks is that they're these obdurate, enduring, difficult <laughs> objects. And yet what they, the way they anchored the space, all these spaces um, were for ceremonial that had different timescales attached to them, different, different, different notions of time and performances of time. So for example, in the Theban um, complexes, there were um, you know, daily rituals that happened in the complexes, right? There's something like 36 daily rituals described in the papyri and on the um, temple walls, kind of offering libations to cult statues. So kind of a daily cycle. Then there's also an annual cycle, this, this, um, the Opet festival where cult statues were processed in and out of the different temples. It's kind of a more civic and consensual um, dimension communal role. And then there were also more, um, what's known as the, the Sed or the Hempsed festival, which was a festival that really marked the anniversary of a pharaoh's um, rule. And it was meant to kind of reinvest the king's potency kind of on the anniversary of the rule. So like after something like 30 years, they would have their first and then uh, more frequently after that. And that was also, you know, processions, a ritual running and all these ceremonials that meant to kind of reinvest the dynamism of the, um, the ruler. But what's interesting, I think, is that the, the spaces that all of these different rituals took place in, you know, with these different timescales or kind of temporal ways of thinking were marked by these monumental punctuation marks, right? Like these, these permanent obelisks. Um, you know, so this idea that I find most compelling is that ritual or ceremonial, which was performed, you know, repeatedly in time and over time in different ways was anchored mm. and commemorated by these singular monuments that were designed to endure through time. So again, it's this correspondence between performances that are kind of ephemeral or cyclical design, but designed for reinvigoration of the yeah. rule between that and this kind of idea of monumental commemoration, kind of historic preservation, right? I think that those two ways of thought really coalesce around the, around the obelisk. And I, I think that's, um, that's what I find most interesting about obelisks in ancient Egypt are these, these, temporal registers that yeah they yeah they they do have sometimes commemorative inscriptions on them uh, in oh yeah hieroglyphic and yeah so that's actually you know that that's the key here is that as markers they are actually historical right yeah. so they are you know they are dedicated and associated with particular rules and not just like general marker. They celebrate a, a pharaoh's rule. They underscore genealogy. You know, the hieroglyphics often um, will map out a pharaoh's terrain, right? So <clears throat> we can think of Hatshepsut's uh, pharaoh, or her, when she was pharaoh, the obelisk that she dedicated, 
the texts will describe the limits of the land, you know, under her sandal and link the material properties of the obelisk itself with her rule, with sovereignty. The glimmering electrum at the top, which um, shone in the sun, was the best of all foreign lands, measured by the gallon-like sacks of grain. They talk about the the feat of engineering to make this monolithic um, obelisk, boasting that it took you know a single seamless block took seven months of quarry work. So there's a lot of really specific historic information that we have that the obelisks preserve about particular moments about particular rulers, like they are kind of historical documents, not just kind of general markers of the terrain. They really embody power, right? They, they, um, they make power uh, felt in really palpable ways because of their scale, right? Yeah. This idea that, you know, whether or not you could read what the hieroglyphs are saying, you feel the power, right? Because of this kind of manufacture that you know the scale of something like that boggles the mind and it you know so there is something about it that's beyond just what's said on the obelisk so i had read that the shape of the obelisk is meant to represent a sunbeam coming down right that it kind of expands a little bit at the top and then it shoots down and it you know flares a little bit like uh like something from a uh from a from a light source and either the tip was encased in some sort of metal yeah. Or there was some sort of metallic orb at the top that sort of represented the sun. Mm-hmm. And even in Constantinople in Rome, where they were moved later, they they kept like this. I think it's described, oh, is it an Amianus? I don't know. Is a kind of pineapple shape? It's a pine cone, pine cone. A pine cone, yes. Not a, a pineapple, pine. I'm sorry. <laughs> I yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I thought pineapple is a bit funnier. Um, <laughs> it would have been better if it's a pineapple. <laughs> now, now I'm reminded of the uh, the Discworld song, the the wizard's staff has a knob at the end. <laughs> okay, sorry. So um, yeah. this power was obviously felt by the Roman emperors and subsequently all of these European colonial regimes, uh, Washington, D.C. and so forth. So there was a export of obelisks from Egypt to, mm-hmm. you know, where Constantinople, there's one in the Hippodrome. There's one authentic uh, Egyptian obelisk in the Hippodrome by Tutmosis III. This is the son of Hatshepsut you just mentioned. There's a, a built obelisk right next to it, which yeah. is not from Egypt, it's just, right? Which I think was encased in like bronze, bronze sheets so that you wouldn't yeah. be able to see, you know, what it was. But then there's a whole number of them in in Rome and Paris and so forth. So why the export of obelisks and like how many were taken or roughly do we know? Most of them, very few are still in Egypt. Tutmose III really raised a lot of obelisks. He raised seven obelisks and four of them survive. Two of them were uh, installed in Thebes. And they, in antiquity, moved to Rome and New Rome, right? And we'll talk more about, about them. And they were definitely part of a larger project, kind of imperial campaign that, that harnessed the symbolic power of commemorative monoliths in ancient Egypt. But even aside from those, you know, two of the other obelisks of um, Tugos III, which were installed in Heliopolis, 
they moved in the 19th century to New York and London. Yeah. And so this isn't just an ancient movement. Um, this is very much um, you know, a modern movement as well. Egyptomania is, is certainly part of it, but I think that the, the larger part of the story of the kind of itinerant obelisk, I think comes back to the idea of power itself and how power is manifested. And so the technical prowess associated with erecting, quarrying and erecting these immense obelisks in mm. Egypt is matched, if not exceeded, by the expertise necessary to deinstall them without breaking them, transport them great distances, and then reinstall them in new spaces. And so I think that, that, that the movement of the obelisks, it's really about um, technological mastery of Egypt. Right. I mean, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself in the movement of the obelisks to all these different places. Yes, Paris, London, New York, Constantinople, Rome has tons. In these movements, we, we lose a sense of specificity of their original context in Egypt. Which pharaoh, what sanctuary, right? These, these Again, these were historical markers. So you lose the grain of texture of history. And I think the obelisks come to embody the idea of Egypt as a great emperor of the past, empire of the past, right? So they become a marker, I think, of time itself and a marker of antiquity itself. They become, in some sense, a monumental measure of the distance between the past and the present. So I, I think they really, in their movement, they come to signify different things. As you write, once Augustus transported well, at least one, Two. Two. And with a monumental complex, he put them in. We'll talk about that in a moment. Yeah. And when Roman hippodromes were almost like required to have a monu uh, an obelisk, and if they had two, this was like super special, and like Rome and Constantinople have two, then, and this is the argument that you make, it's not clear whether subsequent appropriations of obelisk or imitations of obelisk are alluding back to Egypt or to Imperial Rome. Like, it's more like, like, Rome now sets the standard for how you use obelisks and why you need them and what you do with them. And exactly. yeah, yeah. So let's talk about what Augustus did with his obelisks in, <clears throat> in Rome. So he had a whole complex. Can you tell us a little bit what that was designed to do? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he brought two obelisks and each of them were faced with, a, with identical Latin inscriptions, which mentioned Augustus son of divine Caesar, and it mentions dedicating them to the sun. And I quote, when Egypt had been brought under the sway of the Roman people. And so this inscription, I think, on these obelisks really encapsulates what they meant for Augustan Rome, that there is this way in which the obelisks are kind of a metonym for the fallen empire, for the Roman conquest of Egypt. So really the idea of subjugation and kind of spoils of, you know, being taken by the victor is certainly implied by the, those inscriptions. And really this, the idea of the kind of subjugation of Egypt, of course, was key to the Augustan period and sense of really historicity in early imperial Rome. The inscription also indicates certain parallelisms. And I think that's super interesting that you have, you know, these spoils of war in these two different cultures, but there are a lot of connections still in terms of symbols. So the idea that in both contexts, there's a solar association, right? That these are mm -hmm. dedicated to the sun. And that many of the obelisks 
themselves in their Egyptian context were victory monuments against other peoples. So, and, and that's basically what Augustus is doing and taking these obelisks as well. So there, there is some parallelism between them. So the, the first one was installed at the center of the Circus Maximus. It was later excavated like most of the obelisks in Rome, starting in the late 16th century, they were all kind of excavated and recurated around the city. So they're not in their original space now, but there was, um, he did set one up in the Circus Maximus. And in the circus, it, it had, it kind of participated in this wider celestial analogy of the circus. So its central position was akin to the position of the sun where, you know, you can think of the chariots um, as um, heavenly bodies racing cyclically around the sun. So there's a lot of the kind of symbolism of the racetrack and the obelisk in the, the circus in Rome, which will be the same in, in Constantinople as well. But the other obelisk does something kind of crazy. And this has to do with the, um, the building program, the larger renovations of the Campus Martius area of Rome, uh, which really had deep symbolism going back to the foundation of Rome, Romulus and Remus, last Etruscan king. And, and this other obelisk that Augustus brought was installed as the pointer of a massive solar meridian. So this would cast its shadow on the ground on a meridian line and chart the progress of the sun. So the pavement had a um, meridian line inlaid with golden markers. And by measuring the shadow that again was cast by the Egyptian obelisk pointer daily on this pavement, you could kind of track the local time at noon, indicate true north, and really check the congruence of civic and solar calendars. And there's so much literature on this, I mean, it's hard to do justice to it in a brief conversation, but the significance of this is interesting because this really phenomenal installation tells us a lot about the kind of cosmic scale of, um, of the, the imperial agenda here, particularly to Augustus. So when he became Pontifex Maximus, he took on the responsibility of the Roman calendar and had it recalibrated. And, and I think that the, this large scale solar meridian really showed in clearly legible terms, this harmony with the progress of the sun and the year and showcased Augustus's priestly role as kind of a symbolic timekeeper. Right, cosmic timekeeper. Yeah, and like order maker, right? And so this, using this visually arresting and immense monument from the past and one with particular resonances of Roman ascendancy over Egypt, this monument then becomes not just about marking place, but really literally about setting time. And there's some great literature on this. I think Peter Heslin's work is, is fantastic on the idea of the mm. temporal order here. Yeah. And it worked. I mean, we still use the Roman calendar. Uh, we have a month named after him, right? I mean, it's 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 phenomenal uh, how yeah. deeply entrenched uh, these uh, you know imperial orders of time. Uh, Augustus is a cosmic timekeeper, uh, not normally how we think of him, right? But uh, uh, especially if you're a historian looking at his career, he he looks yeah. somewhat different. But yeah, he did leave that behind. And, and I should say the um, the cosmic symbolism of the Hippodrome, there are some ancient authors who elaborate that in great detail, mm -hmm. right? Like the colors of the racing teams are the four seasons and mm -hmm. the, the bits at the end of the track are represent the different phases of the moon or what, whatever. Yeah. It's like really, really <clears throat> elaborate. Yeah. 
And yeah, and having this solar monument in the middle. Um, now, some might think this, this sort of conflicts with ancient theories of geocentrism, uh, but actually there were contexts in which the sun was placed symbolically in the center of the universe. And, and this was mm -hmm. one of them. Uh, anyway, and that whole symbology was transferred over to Constantinople when the Hippodrome was built. There sort of accompanied the, the Roman Hippodrome as it was exported to all the cities in the East. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the obelisk, the authentic Egyptian obelisk in the Hippodrome in Constantinople. And so who, when, why, and so forth. Sounds like a pretty straightforward question, but it's not. I mean, we do know the basics that in the late fourth century um, under Theodosius, the obelisk gets raised in the, in the Hippodrome. But in order to understand how that happens, we really have to go back to Constantine and we have to think about the relationship between New Rome and Old Rome. So again, as you mentioned earlier, in some sense in Constantinople, the obelisk was less about Constantinople and Egypt and more about Constantinople and Rome. So when Constantine the Great, when he, uh, he was involved in having this massive obelisk of Tutmose III, the largest one at Karnak, dismantled from its site and shipped down the Nile to Alexandria to wait the construction of special ship to transport it to its likely destination, which would have been Constantinople. He died before um, it reached its destination and it kind of languished in Alexandria. And then his son had it moved instead to Rome. Um, and this is in the 357 as part of a month long um, triumphal visit there. But the question about whether Constantine actually intended that obelisk to be for Rome or for Constantinople requires a little bit of um, qualifications. Our sources are not really clear about this. One of our sources says it actually was meant to go to Rome, but I think you know most scholar, scholars, and I'm following Jonathan Bartle here, who's really made a clear case that the idea of the largest obelisk from um, Thebes going to Constantinople really does fit with a Constantinian agenda, right? Yeah. This seems totally Constantinian. It seems like a no brainer that this large obelisk was part of the plan for Constantinople. What I'm suggesting is that the, the idea of this obelisk for the Hippodrome of Constantinople, we really should see it as a Constantinian conception, but the execution was Theodosian. It was under Theodosius that it actually that it actually came to to its place. Now, it was installed at the center of the Hippodrome. So, just like the Circus of Rome, it finds its place at the Circus of Constantinople, standing there still today. Unlike the rest of the monuments, the obelisks in Rome. And again, the precise circumstances of its arrival are a bit unclear. We know that it had been in the city for some time already before it was actually erected on the Hippodrome in 390. What I find compelling about the early history of the obelisk is that we don't have external sources describing its transport or arrival. We don't have historians collaborating on it. There is a reference to Emperor Julian requesting an obelisk that had been lying on the beaches of Alexandria, and that's in 362, but not much else. There's really not a lot of references to it before it actually gets to the Hippodrome. But interesting part here is that our real evidence for it is the, the monument itself. 
again, so yeah, the yeah. inscriptions, you know, allow us to trace where it came from. And then the base itself, which we can talk about, does both textually and visually describe the circumstances of, of its installation on the Hippodrome. And so, so it's just a wonderful monument that, you know, we don't have stories about it. It tells us about its history in interesting ways. And I think that in thinking of the who, what, where, and why, I'm interested in the how we know what we know about it, which is really the monument itself. Yeah, I'm reminded what you said earlier, that the transport of such a thing is itself a reflection of the power um, of the imperial regime that's doing it. It requires special sh ships, mm -hmm. uh, you know, very specialized, uh, not so much a work crew. I imagine they used, you know, workers, you know, from other kinds of projects, but the technique involved in raising an obelisk and putting it on a marble stand that you've <laughs> designated for it, right? Is and if if I remember correctly, this one broke. Oh yeah. And they yeah the the bottom third broke off, and so yeah. they had to adjust the base for a slightly <laughs> narrower right surface. Yeah. Yeah, and I should say that that's the you know the the great irony here is that the, the marble base of the obelisk, which is like this amazing work of art, and it yeah. owes its existence and to the accident that they actually broke the obelisk. Yeah. So they had to kind of make this base to fill in the space. And that's why we have like our greatest public monument of the Theodosian period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the base, or rather the base of the base, right? So the base, right. what we call the base is this, is this Borg cube that depicts Theodosius on all four mm -hmm. sides. And it rests on the original base, presumably. And that original base has the epigrams, the Latin one facing the imperial box, the Greek one facing the stands on the other side that sort of talk about the erection of the obelisk by Theodosius and his city prefect, who was Proculus at the time. But by the way, it's, it's interesting that Theodosius was in Rome while this was happening. He was putting down one of those Western rival emperors. Hmm. Um, and then underneath the base... Uh, it depicts a scene of racing in the Hippodrome itself. So it's a very meta. And on the other side, it depicts the whole process of installation with mm -hmm. the ropes and the workers and the sl whatever sled they had to drag that thing and, and mm -hmm. all of that. So mm -hmm. it's this very, very self-referential and pointing to the process of its erection. Yeah. And, you know, in the process of doing it, and that's something I've, I've thought a lot about, you know, there's the, there's the obsession with the technology, because, like, let's face it, that was a serious feat, right? Mm. It, it was not, and the inscriptions really call it, you know, an, a, a reluctant uh, installation, right? It was hard to do, like, there's a real self-consciousness about how difficult this was, both technologically, both visually, and in terms of the text itself, of the inscription itself, there's an acknowledgement of the challenges of, um, of raising the obelisk. But you kind of zoom out in adding all that extra information on the base, it's actually framing the obelisk in a different way. It's, it's making the obelisk kind of framed around Roman technology and around Roman triumph. It's installing the obelisk, but it's also conceptually reinstalling the obelisk, um, making it a victory monument a Theodosian victory monument, more than Tutmosis victory monument. So there's a way in which it's all of the, the kind of meta about the base, you know, is interesting in and of itself, but it also does point to the way that I, I think the obelisk in its 
Constantinopolitan context is becoming framed and foregrounded around Theodosian power, not pharaonic power. Yeah, how do you imagine the obelisk interacting with the kinds of events, and I'm thinking more ceremonial than the races that were taking place in the Hippodrome? I mean, the Hippodrome obviously had the races. It also had, um, you know, distributions of largesse, but it also was the site of imperial encounter. Is that kind of what we're thinking of yeah, here? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. ceremonial. The ceremonial dimensions of the Hippodrome are really important. It's true. This is this was a site for the games, for the races, entertainments, and all of that associated with consuls, with emperors. But it also was the place of imperial encounter. And I think that that's important because the base of the obelisk has images of the emperor. This is a, a pharaonic monument. But the site of the Hippodrome, you know, with its allusions to old Rome, it really was the, the the main site for the people of Constantinople to actually encounter their emperor face to face where he was acclaimed, where he was visually presented as emperor. And because of these imperial associations of the site, the Hippodrome itself provided kind of an optimal venue for military triumphs, spectacles performed for foreign embassies, receptions. So it wasn't just the site to proclaim power, which it indeed was, but it was also the site to test power. So of course, you could, the most famous is the Nika revolts, right? Starting in the Hippodrome and also brutally suppressed in the Hippodrome, right? So it's, this was also the site for, you know, ritual executions where these monuments of victory um, you know, dotting the landscape of the Hippodrome would be this backdrop for, for gruesome events. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's a way in which I think the Hippodrome is this site that's very much associated with the rising of the emperor to the cathisma and this, all of the solar imagery of that, but it's also the site of, of, um, of contest, of tension in imperial, um, in kind of the contours of imperial office and imperial power. So, so I think it's a site that's, that's a little bit, of, of both. And I yeah. think that the, the yeah. I, I like how you mentioned the, the ceremonial entrance of the emperor into his box in the Hippodrome. And, and by the way, the Imperial box in the Hippodrome was a building in itself. Yeah. Uh, don't imagine something from like a Mozart house uh, sort of addressing <laughs> the, the audience here. It, it was like a three story building with a dome and its own mosaics and all yeah. kinds of things yeah. inside. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, with a at the on the top, it was a open for the emperor and his guests to view the games and be seen by the crowds. Yeah. And when the emperor appeared there, the crowds would shout, you know, Anatilon, which is a a verb that refers to the rising of the sun in the east, from where we get like Anatolia from. And so, and the interesting thing is that the palace is to the east of the hippodrome. So the emperor's coming from the east. Um, and he's rising up and everybody is acclaiming him that way. This is on a good day, right? The emperor's having a good day <laughs> in Constantinople. You never know with the crowd. So I, what I like to imagine is when the son, the actual son, not the emperor, but as son king, but the actual son appears over the hills on the you know Asian side of the Bosporus in the morning. The first things that its rays would hit, and this is in Theodosian Constantinople, before Hagia Sophia and Justinian put himself first in line there, mm -hmm. would have been the colossal statue of Constantine on mm -hmm. top of his column in the form of Constantine. Right? Now, 
that's slightly higher up because the ground rises, you know, from the hippodrome as you go to the form of Constantine. And the column itself was at 37 meters, something like that. And colossal statue on top, you know, maybe six meters or more tall, gilded. So that would have been the first thing that would just shine in the sky as even before, right? Like the people on the street saw the sun, they'd see that thing flashing and the tip of the obelisk, mm. right? If it had the knob at the end. So there's two obelisks. Right. The hippodrome, okay? And yep. so you've got the, um, what's called the built obelisk or the built masonry obelisk. obelisk, which is, would have originally been sheathed in bronze bronze boy so, you know so this is really i think you know when we think about the sun rising and you know i love you know the symbolism of like you know say before the games on the day before the games where the emperor is going to go to the kathisma you know the chanting of the crowd saying rise rise starts before the emperor comes into view right uh, and you know so th there's a this oral kind of invitation let's say to yeah. the emperor to rise like the sun and you know rising up and from the east like the sun from the palace i mean the kathisma is sometimes called the kind of like the rose garden of the palace you know that this was the public face of the of the palace there's that um kind of performative rising which is very clearly mapping the body of the emperor with the sun for sure but yeah, in terms of the kind of solar exploitation of monuments, you've got the two, you've got the two obelisks, you've got the statue of Constantine, and but you're very right, like to think about this before Hagia Sophia, in terms of what these high points would be that would be catching the sun. I think that that's a that's a really good point. I think some people are doing um, really experimenting with modeling and kind of reimagining Constantinople in different historical moments, which monuments would be there and not there, mm -hmm. and what kind of sight lines there would be. So some people are, are doing some of this research that's really interesting because you do, you do have to kind of always think, well, what was visible and what wasn't at that moment? You have to have that historic specificity. The Hippodrome itself, there was the, the Tutmos III's Egyptian obelisk, but there also was this built obelisk that is made of masonry blocks, but you wouldn't have known that at the time no. because it would have been completely sheathed in bronze. So there would have been this enormous bronze monument next to the original, or not the original, next to the authentic Egyptian obelisk. And those would be the two kind of solar monuments. Yeah, yeah, you wouldn't want to go near that on a hot day. <laughs> uh, no. um, I, I'm also intrigued to, you know, the hieroglyphic aspect. Yeah. Because the, uh, Tuthmosis' obelisk has hieroglyphs on all four sides. The interesting thing is that the sort of the pharaonic cartouche side of the monument is the one facing the imperial box, mm. which, okay, there's a one in four chance that that's random. I mean, it's right <laughs> that they got it right if it's random. Right. Or else somebody knew that, like they had some kind of Egyptian expert. And I think this is the decade, uh, 390s, from which we have the last known dated hieroglyphic inscription in Egypt. So this is, this is the decade when actual reading knowledge of hieroglyphics goes extinct, or yeah. soon thereafter. In the 5th yeah. century, we, have, <clears throat> we start having these like Neoplatonic treatises on hieroglyphs written in Egypt that are just complete bogus. Right. Um, yeah. So it's possible that they had some actual Egyptian you know, knowledge and lore brought here. 
And I was fascinated by the fact that the, the little miniature obelisk that's depicted on the base about to be erected, it also has little miniature hieroglyphics carved on it, like oh, imitating, okay. like it's, those are like our only specimen of actual native Constantinopolitan Egyptian hieroglyphs. It's sort of weird. Anyway. And, and they're, but they're done really well. I yeah, mean, yeah, the yeah. artist did a really good job. There's a very close correspondence between the, the rendering of the hieroglyphs in marble on the lower base with the order of the hieroglyphs on the obelisk it, itself. So, yes. you know, there's a interesting, there's an interesting play there between, between those for sure. I mean, yeah, there's now they're very eroded now yeah. uh, because of air pollution and all kinds of things. But I think based on photographs from the early 20th century, I think someone had proposed that the, <laughs> the hieroglyphs on the base refer to the gods like that's what it reads it's a reference to the gods which is interesting because the city prefect proclus raised this he was a pagan and his father was pagan too uh, and they were soon executed in a in some there was some political uh, you know turmoil um and i was just kind of wondering if they're getting some <laughs> some little pagan wedge into the, you know, the Theodosian <laughs> regime via Egyptian hieroglyphs. His father, Tatianos, uh, he had actually been a governor in Egypt uh, in, in the past. So yeah, I've, I've tracked these guys down to see what they were, what they had been up to. I mean, uh, if you hadn't done the research, I might start to think that you are really into conspiracy theories. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let me tell you about the international ring. You know? <laughs> yes. I mean, look at, you know, I don't really, all I know about, uh, the knowledge of hieroglyphics in the fifth century is what I know from you. It, it's hard to know what the actual knowledge of hieroglyphs, like what actually was known about the hieroglyphs on it. But legibility, there's two different ways of thinking about legibility. Like literally, yeah, I don't know who knew what they said, but the idea of hieroglyphs themselves as being recognized as this numinous kind of sacred characters yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that had meaning i mean people if they couldn't read it they knew what it was right that this was this sacred writing of egypt so i think that there's those two levels of legibility that are you know we can't forget about the other the more kind of symbolic one. Oh, absolutely uh hieroglyphs probably more than any other script in history has attracted mystics and uh, you know, symbolic readings and all kinds of things. And, and that's, this period is no exception. Like yeah. I said, the Platonists are, you know, making hay of all this stuff. I don't know that they could, uh, who could read it or anything like that. And besides the cartouche can be identified, even if you can't actually read, you know, what it's saying. Right. Uh, what about the um, figures on the base, the, this quadruple representation of Theodosius in his imperial box? Yeah. What do you yeah. make of that? You know, it's so interesting that in other conversations, you we've, we've talked about these as kind of normative templates. And I, I love that that phrase that the imagery of the base kind of serves as this normative templates. What I think is the base itself has these four sides, shows the emperor in the cathisma flanked by the imperial household, administration, military. It's kind of kind of a, a lithic epiphany, if you will. And I think that the idea that this is the center of the hippodrome opposite where the emperor actually appeared in the Cathisma. This is kind of, a, you know, the marble version of the performance that would have happened. And so this relationship between, again, the performative dimensions of what actually happened in the, in the Hippodrome and the monument itself, the permanent marker, 
is really interesting. And there's the, the temporal relationship between these two, right? There's certain portions of it that are very historical, right? The lower base with the raising of the obelisk. But then the faces of the emperor on all four sides are strangely generic. There's something strangely, you know, there's a stilled, hieratic look for all of them. It's really less about a particular moment and more about this kind of spectacular quality of what of looking at the emperor of the emperor in one of them he's holding the wreath so there, there are differences on all four mm-hmm. sides but despite those comp- compositional differences the overall look is really quite static and similar across the the four but there is a difference between them that hinges on which side of the hippodrome they face right so where you were sitting in the hippodrome and what you saw right. actually does does um, condition the imagery in really interesting ways. And in part, in order to sense, I actually think the language of the inscriptions and the inscriptions themselves help orient which side faces what audience. So really we're talking about the position of the base in relationship to, to, the, to its expected original audience. So the dedicatory inscriptions are both in Greek and Latin. The Latin inscription, which was you know, in the fifth century, the language of the court, bureaucracy, military spheres, the law, that side of the inscription faces the cathisma. And then on the other side, which faces the kind of the populace, it's in Greek, which again, this kind of lingua franca of the, of the people, which of course complemented the more polyglot culture of Constantinople, but that was what faced the, the people. So there's a, a language description, but that the inscriptions aren't just a bilingual rendering of the same text. They actually yeah. tell their story quite differently. And you know, how many times people are walking through the Hippodrome just assume that it's the same, that it's the same thing that it says. It does say give the same basic information, right? It says, you know, that the this was erected by Theodosius with Proclus and the amount of time, but there's differences between the two. So the Greek side gives kind of a very basic information. It's much shorter. It's all positive. It's kind of generic. But the Latin inscription, which again faces the cathisma, gives more detail. It tells a much more nuanced story of factionalism and of Theodosian triumph. It's also written in the voice of the obelisk. Right. First person. I love that, right? Yes. It, you know, I was ordered to obey the masters after the tyrants had been extinguished yes, or whatever. Yes. You know? I was conquered and mastered in 30 days. So there's this really, I think the fact that it's a first person account of the obelisk and that's facing the cathisma, really, really interesting. It turns the obelisk into a victory monument, right? Because it's it's referring to a suppressed coup by Theodosius at the time. And so in doing that, it's really becoming a victory monument, right? Where Theodosius's conquering of the obelisk is akin to his conquering of the tyrants of these, this unsuccessful coup of his rivals, becoming a Theodosian victory monument that then allows the, you know, the Theodosians to continue, right? And this is of course, plainly advertised again on the cathisma facing side. And, you know, Linda Saffron has a great article about this, pointing out that, you know, 
in its original configuration, like you didn't exactly change seats in the Hippodrome, right? You didn't, it's not like all of a sudden one day they're going to yes, yeah. the people that are going to sit on the Kathisma side and switch them the other day. Like these were really um, set subject positions, right? No one else sat, you know, it was the imperial administration that sat yeah, on the yeah. Kathisma side, that this was distinct, right? That's actually one of my favorite articles. I, I read it, I think when I was an undergraduate or thereabouts. And it was it was eye opening to me. I, I didn't know until that point that you could look at monuments that way, that you could read them within their overall spatial environment and yeah. say who can see what and from what side and and so forth. And it, it was really eye opening. And once you start thinking along those lines, you know, it's there's no end to like just imagine. So yeah, the monument itself is speaking in the first person to Theodosius, like he's addressed because he's you know the. the the inscription is pointing toward the imperial box. And on the other hand, you have Theodosius in his imperial box, looking out onto the Hippodrome, seeing Theodosius in his imperial box, right, depicted uh, on the base of the obelisk. Okay, Cecily, we're almost at an hour's time, so we should wrap this up. But I was wondering if you could leave us with another sort of interesting uh, example of, you know, how these monuments interact with their audiences, uh, especially, you know, the, the Theodosian obelisk base. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and this is really my interest in obelisks, you know, has to do with these juxtapositions of temporal modes and models, right? This idea of ceremonies that are performed around them and that they are anchored by them and that change over time, right? So certainly, the placement of you know, the inscriptions and other details in the original setting are very much mark the whole monument as this kind of Theodosian project and Theodosian victory. But it also kind of served as a, as a template later on and as, as things change, right? This is the, the site changes, the administration changes and the kind of what I think one might once have thought of as an afterlife, but I think it's actually more appropriate to think of a kind of continued life of the obelisk. It does kind of shape certain aspects later on. Um, so I wanted to kind of briefly mention this, uh, this is probably a good way to close about this distinction between the two faces of the marble base facing the Kathisma and facing the people and the way that um, that a particular reading of the difference between the two, in the two, not the inscriptions of the pictorial imagery that Matt Kanipa actually made in his wonderful book. Um, the fact that the, the face um, that uh, faces the, the people shows these vanquished barbarians kneeling before the emperor and offer tribute. And this is, of course, a stock iconographic theme in the repertoire of victory. We have a lot of um, images of that and relates also to what happened in the space. Primary sources stress the importance of tribute and diplomatic gifts. They were enumerated, appraised, and displayed. Some were even paraded through the Hippodrome, right? So yeah. there is this idea of presenting um, gifts to the emperor would have been ceremonial, really relevant. And so later in, in the sixth century, when the emperor hosted a delegation of Sasanians, Kanipa argues that this image that faced the people kind of served as this encrypted image of, of triumph. And it in, encrypted because the kneeling barbarians were positioned on the face you know, the people saw, but that the people in the Kathisma did not see, which right. is, of course, where the Sasanian delegation would have been.
been. And so the the people opposite the Kathisma would see the imperial box and the delicates and but see that framed by this lithic image of barbarians subjugating themselves in front of the emperor. So it as a kind of uh, frame for contemporary um, ceremonial and diplomatic practice that again, was not the original intention of the obelisk base, but the obelisk base just kind of presented this wonderful opportunity that was capitalized on yeah. you know, centuries later and, and and still did later still. I mean, it became an important site for Ottoman ceremonial later, and it really did have this life that continued on um, and shaped ceremonial practices in later periods. Yeah, I love that reading too. You know, the emperor might be honoring all these foreign dignitaries in the imperial box, because we know that they were taken to see the games and the entertainments and the dancing girls and the organs that were playing and all of the bear shows and all of this. Yeah. And yet the people on the other side of the hippodrome, not the dignitaries in the box, had this sort of their own secret message for what the actual relationship was. Like, you know what's going on here. It's, it's not what you see, it's what you see on the base. Uh, of the obelisk. Um, and that's, yeah, it's, yeah. So, it's so very Byzantine to have something that, you know, it really, when you first visit the Hippodrome and you see the obelisk base, you're like, oh yeah, there's four images of the emperor. All right. But then it's like, you look a little closer and you're like, oh, right. how come there's dancing girls on one side and kneeling barbarians on the other? And it, so it's this close looking that is not immediately apparent, but it kind of, the more you look, the more you unpack yeah encoded messages that's why i love the idea of proclus putting a, a hieroglyphic hymn to the gods on the on the mini obelisk depicted on the base of the big op anyway okay yeah great i i love this uh chapter that you wrote thank you um because again obelisks might be architecturally pretty pretty useless <laughs> but i think that we've shown that uh they uh they do so much work in the yeah. symbolic realm they're, they're really amazing yeah thank so you. thank you and for coming on. My pleasure.